You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Well, we are in a series that we're calling Stronger Together. And it's really just a word study on the phrase one another through the Greek New Testament. And today in our passage in Colossians 3, it comes up quite a few times. So we're going to be in Colossians 3, 9 today. And Paul is calling us to disciple one another. We are called to disciple one another, to help each other get better at following Jesus and bearing the image and the name of Jesus Christ. So Colossians 3, we're going to be starting at verse 9. It's good to be in the habit of opening a Bible. Colossians 3, starting at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you may or may not have been following the coronavirus coverage in the news in Arizona for the last few weeks. It's been kind of a topic of focus. And on Friday, there was an interview with an ER doctor, CNN, and I really appreciated it. I I learned a lot in the course of that conversation about his perspective, and I both agreed and disagreed, which is what happens when we listen to people. He was an ER physician who's really upset because he keeps dealing with people who are coming into the hospital who are in real trouble because of the coronavirus. And he said, if you don't wear a mask, it's like you're saying to the world, I'm a social Darwinist and I don't care if you die. Even children have more compassion than that. And setting aside kind of the point of what he was saying, I actually think it's really interesting that he connected Darwinism and a lack of empathy. Darwinism and a lack of empathy. Now, you may not know what Darwinism is, so I just want to clarify. Darwinism is not agreeing with the theory of evolution. There are Christians who like the theory of evolution. There are Christians who don't. Both kinds go to our church, and that's great. Darwinism is not agreeing with the theory of evolution. Darwinism is when you turn the theory of evolution into a belief system that tells you about who you are and what it is to be a person and how I operate in society and, and how we deal with one another as people. And Darwinism is doing something with the theory of evolution that it was never meant 
to do. It, it shouldn't really be done. Right? Nature is red in tooth and in claw. It, it's a pretty brutal thing to say, well, the strongest survive. It's a pretty brutal thing to say, well, the only real reason for existence is to have sex. It's a pretty brutal thing to say, well, we deal with one another in such a way that the, might get, well, the, the mighty get to make the rules. And Darwinism is a pretty ugly thing. And, I, and so I was listening to this doctor and I thought, that's a really interesting connection. You're saying you see how people are living and because you see how they live, you know what they believe. And I think it's a pretty fair critique, actually. But he used the phrase social Darwinism. And the thing about social Darwinism is it's not the same thing as Darwinism. It's actually a, a, an even further move with the theory of evolution. And, and basically, it's the idea that some people are just born better than other people, just genetically or biologically superior to other people. And if you're thinking, well, that would be almost a scientific justification for racism, you would be right. And science textbooks and other textbooks like to forget that this happened uh, in the 1800s in particular, but kind of kept going uh, throughout time, that it was a, well, a really strong argument for racism that was based in what you could call science, but wasn't really science. It was a belief system about the way the world works. And for Christians, well, we have to disagree with that. Fundamentally, we have to disagree with that. And we have to disagree with that, honestly, because of what we believe about human beings and what we believe about the way the world works. Not because we have some modernist, enlightened understanding of the world where all human beings are basically the same, but because the Bible says that human beings were made in the image of God. That's what it says in Genesis 1, and so whether you believe in evolution or not, you have to believe that human beings were made in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. And that is fundamental, just changes to who we are and how we treat one another in the world. It means that we operate very differently with other people and we live very differently from other people. And that's really what Paul is getting at when he is referencing Genesis and the first three verses of our passage. He says, look, we've seen the image of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have seen the image of God, not just God himself in the flesh, but also the new Adam. Also a different way of being human, a completely different way of being human. Really, in Jesus, we see what it is to be human, and we didn't know before that. And so, in some ways, coming to Jesus is like saying, I need to get rid of all of my old identity, and I need a brand new one. We don't get to come to Jesus and say, well, I know who I am, and I'd really like to know how to be a better person. We don't come to Jesus and say, well, I'd I really, I have a pretty strong sense of my identity, but I'd like a better understanding of, of what it is to be a Christian and have this identity. We come to Jesus, we say, I don't know who I am, and I don't have an identity, but apart from Christ. I take the old self and I throw it away like dirty rags. That's what Paul says. And I get a brand new self. A brand new self that is so much closer to the image of God that was created in me in the first place. I start stepping into the person I was always meant to become. And when we do that together in community, the church starts to look like humanity as it was always meant to be, slowly and steadily clothing ourselves in the new self. And he keeps going with his metaphor of putting on clothes, that we're, we're wearing things like compassion and humility and meekness and gentleness, that we're, well, filled with patience and, well, above all, clothed in love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And we start to look like that. Well, then we become this really countercultural community where strange groups of people that don't really blend start to blend all of a sudden where there suddenly is no such thing as barbarian, Scythian, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free, Greek, and Jew, male and female, he adds elsewhere. 
we could just get this brand new version of humanity. Which isn't to say, of course, that people don't have an ethnic or cultural identity, that they don't have personality all to their own. God isn't saying that everyone becomes unified by becoming the same. Actually, what's happening is there's this unity and diversity. The idea that we have in our society that there's such a thing as pluralism, there's such a thing as a universal understanding of human rights and the value of the human person is actually just something we, we stole from Christianity. Pope Benedict, who was the Pope before Pope Francis, in 2008 spoke to the United Nations uh, on their Declaration of Human Rights, which they came up with in 1948. And I'm going to paraphrase a lot because he's a very smart guy and he had a lot to say. But basically what he said is, look, it's great to talk about human rights, and I totally agree with what you've said about human rights. But the reason for that is that you're actually stealing a Christian understanding of the way the world works and what a human being is. You've taken the fruit of our tradition, but you've forgotten the root of it. Human rights are not something that, well, 51% of us happen to agree on at any one time. Human rights are well, grounded in something, rooted in something fundamental, objective, about the way the world works and the way God made humanity. At least that's what Christians believe. You're describing a Christian worldview. You're just trying to forget that it's a Christian worldview. And so you and I, as people, we're folks who are dealing with a, a culture around us that wants to talk about the same things that we talk about, but they're forgetting where it comes from, and that's why they're having so much trouble talking about it well. Paul, who's writing this, he sounds like an idealist. Right, this, uh, this is a ridiculous, amazing sentence about humanity. And, of course, you remember that Christianity is this tiny minority group in an ancient empire called Rome, that Paul has no power, no cultural capital, that he's actually a minority who is currently being oppressed by his government. Uh, the Roman government, which loved to talk about how they brought liberty and justice to all, who loved to talk about the Pax Romana, which is a Latin phrase meaning the peace of Rome. And the peace of Rome was something they loved to talk about because they'd, just, they'd conquered all wars. They'd stopped any and all fighting across the world. And anyone in Rome could experience the peace of Rome because it was in charge. And it was amazing if you were Roman. It worked great if you were Roman. But if you weren't Roman, you knew the ugly reality. And the truth was, this peace came at a price, and the price was the conquering of other nations, the destruction of anyone who would disagree, and of course, the survivors within an oppressed minority within Rome. Rome likes to talk about how it brought a bunch of different nations together, but it did that by making sure no one could speak out, and no one could really critique the system, because they would violently and brutally put that down. They would crucify the leaders of people who spoke against the system of Rome. That should sound familiar. And so Paul, who is writing this letter, is writing as someone who has been unjustly arrested, unjustly beaten by the Roman authorities, and unjustly imprisoned right now. And all of this happened because Paul, as this strange ethnic minority called a Christian, was talking about the gospel, and it caused a public disturbance, and so the Romans could just violently do whatever they wanted to him. And when they did, and they threw him in prison, they discovered that he was also a Roman citizen. And that was really horrifying for them, embarrassing for them. And suddenly they, they, they wanted to apologize, and they wanted to sweep things under the rug, and they wanted to pretend like it never happened. And Paul was obnoxious. He didn't just let it go. He insisted on his day in court. He insisted that he talk about the injustice that had happened to him, and insisted that he speak about the justice of the kingdom of God along the way. Paul knew he had an opportunity to bear witness to a very different kind of system, a very different kind of peace. So Paul is currently in prison right now, 
He's wearing chains right now because the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's writing to you and to me, 21st century Americans, not to mention barbarians and Scythians and circumcised and slave and free and uncircumcised and male and female and all sorts of other people in this new strange reality called the church. And he says, look, there's a different kind of peace. It's the peace of Christ. And that's the kind of peace that should rule in your hearts and in mine. See, when we hear things like Romans 15, or gosh, Colossians 3.15, we tend to hear, well, God's talking about it like an inner spiritual kind of religious peace, which is certainly true. The religious peace that passes all understanding, that comes into our hearts and changes the way we deal with anxiety and the fear and the cultural pressures that we deal with. Absolutely. But it's also a very political statement. And Paul would know that, and anyone listening would know that. You cannot talk about the peace of Christ and say that it's different from the Pax Romana without people hearing you gently and steadily call for a revolution, for a different kind of system entirely. And so you and I, as people who belong to this different system, this completely different country called the kingdom of God, when we live in the time that we live in and we hear the voices that we hear, we say, okay, so we want to be clear about what we believe and we want it to be obvious that we follow Jesus. We don't want people confusing us for, say, social Darwinists. We want to be really clear about what exactly we believe and the way we live our lives should make that obvious. And so we become, as Christians, some of the first to say the system is broken because we believe biblically that the system is broken, that any human system is broken, that it is bound to tend toward injustice. And we want the overthrow of that system, not by another human system, but by the kingdom of God. Because we are citizens of a different kingdom, and so we have much less invested in the American experiment and whether or not they can figure this whole situation out. Instead, we are people who say, yeah, you guys are bad at this, and we know someone who's good at it. We're not good at it, but we are clothing ourselves in that new self. Slowly and steadily, we are living like a completely different group of people, like a completely different kind of human being. And it's our hope that you would see that in us and that you would be invited into a new kind of justice, one that ultimately you're already talking about, one that you already see the value of, but you can't get that fruit without what it's rooted in. And that's the kingdom of God. We, as Christians, should be some of the first to say things like, black lives matter, because we believe that black lives matter. And we also know that we can say things like that without agreeing with every other thing that people who might say black lives matter would be saying. We can say things like, the lives of our enemies matter, without necessarily agreeing with everything that our enemies might say on the subject. Because we're Christians, and we know that people are made in the image of God, and we need to be people who relentlessly talk about the image of God in the people that we disagree with, and it changes the way that we disagree with people. Right? If we remember what Paul is talking about, that all these people are slowly and steadily putting on a brand new image, well, then we could be different kinds of people with them. We could bear with one another, as Paul says. We could be patient with one another as they are really bad at following Jesus and as we are really bad at following Jesus. There's this weird kind of patience that happens in the midst of this challenge. And that's the beautiful thing about the church, that you and I get to practice following Jesus together. It's really hard to learn to forgive other people if you're not alongside other people who make mistakes. It's really hard to learn how to be humble if you're not around other people who think that they're smarter than you. It's really hard, actually, to practice the gospel of Jesus Christ unless you're surrounded by really broken people and you are committed to loving them really well. 
And Paul is telling us all this because he isn't just saying, well, you need to be discipling one another. He's discipling us from a distance. Paul is, well, in his own kind of quarantine, in a prison from far away. This is Zoom for Paul. He's writing a letter. And the amazing thing about it is that recording makes it to you and me across thousands of years. And he says, look, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to become different people to take off an old self and throw it away like dirty rags and put on a brand new kind of self. You're going to need to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what it says in verse 16. And that word richly is plusias in Greek. Uh, It reminds me of a dessert called tiramisu, uh, one of the better desserts created by human beings. Uh, And I know it can be controversial, and so I just want to say, those of you who don't agree that tiramisu is delicious, uh, you're wrong, and I'm glad that you're muted. Uh, That's just the way that it works. The tiramisu is this beautiful dessert that is built on the base of a cookie. And the cookie is called ladyfinger. It's a very manly dessert. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But ladyfingers are the base of this dessert. They're cookies. And what you do is you soak them in a kind of coffee liqueur. And they get, well, just saturated with it. To the point that they cease to be cookies. But they don't become a liqueur. They become just absolutely sad. They're nowhere, they're neither liquid nor solid anymore. They're not cookie or liqueur. They're something else. They're completely filled with it. And they are delicious. That is really what Paul is talking about when he says the word of Christ needs to dwell in us richly. We need to be saturated in it. We need to become delicious. There was a New Testament commentator named A.L. Williams. He wrote a book on Colossians about 100 years ago, and it's fantastic. But in the book, what he says is, if you change this image even slightly, what Paul is really saying is that we need to become at home in the gospel story and let the gospel story be at home in us. Are you at home in the gospel story? Is it at home in you? Do you know the story of Jesus? And not just like the, you know, the big outline, but do you know the story of Jesus? Could you tell some of the words of Jesus from memory? Not because you've memorized them, but just because you know the sorts of things that he says. Are you constantly reading this story and kind of amazed and and able to maybe tell children, you know, about how Jesus walked on water, he fed 5,000? Could you you tell the story to other people just quickly and from you? Do you not need to look it up every time? Do you know the story of the cross and what it is? Do you know why we talk about grace and sin? Could you define those words really well? Do they make sense in your life? Is the gospel story at home in you the way you're at home in the gospel story? Is it it just information that you're picking up, or are you slowly and steadily saying, well, I want to become somebody who follows Jesus, and I'm I'm really wrestling with the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. I'm trying to become at home in the gospel story and let it become at home in me. Because that, by the way, is how we take off this old identity and put on a brand new one. This is all intimately tied together. The the image of God is being renewed in us through knowledge, Paul says. And that knowledge isn't just like abstract intellectual material. This is a different kind of knowledge when the word of Christ really dwells in us richly. We become these different kinds of people who know the gospel story backward and forward. And one of the things that that sort of just demands is that you and I would teach and admonish one another. That's what he says, which really just means discipling one another, that we would always be gospeling with one another. There's an old proverb that goes like this, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. It's a beautiful thing about proverbs. It takes ordinary things that we know really well, and it turns them into a riddle that we don't understand, and we have to solve the riddle if we want to become wise. That's what the book of Proverbs does time and again. So there's something about this motion. 
something about that image and that feeling of sharpening iron with iron teaches us something about what it is to be a person in the world. I'm always intrigued by the fact that if you cut a tomato with a knife, it will get dull. But if you cut metal with a knife, it will grow terrifyingly sharp. It seems extremely paradoxical, but there's something about challenge that makes us better as being people, particularly being challenged by others. It's true for Russia and the United States in the space race. It's true for Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Triple H in the WWE. It's true for Dwight and Jim in The Office. It's true for LeBron and Steph Curry in the NBA. It's true for, well, in fiction with Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes, or well, with Tesla and Edison in science, or Bert and Ernie, right? All of these people make each other better. They make each other better through challenge. And there's just something about that, that you and I would be people who would challenge one another and teach and admonish one another and disciple one another, not by saying, I'm better at this than you and you're not very good at it. Right? Think about the kind of people Paul is describing in verse 12. People with compassion and humility and meekness and patience. Right? Actually, we would come alongside folks and say, look, I'm bad at this. I'm learning how to do this. I can tell you that I'm slowly and steadily trying to throw away this old image of myself and wrap myself in a new image. And I want to come alongside you as you do that as well. That we would be people who are constantly discipling one another, constantly preaching the gospel to one another. People always think that evangelism is for non-Christians. That's not what evangelism is for. It's definitely for non-Christians. It's just also for Christians. The practice of being a Christian involves constantly speaking about the gospel, constantly reminding yourself, what is it that I actually believe about what a person is? What is it that I actually believe about the cross? What is it that this actually says about Jesus and about me? But that's not just something that happens as an individual. It's something that happens in community, something that actually happens at its best in community. The church is not a group of people who happen to have had some spiritual experiences that are similar. We're not just a bunch of individuals that happen to, oh, I have a lot in common with it. We're people who've been brought together by the story of Jesus Christ who are trying to help one another be better at following Jesus Christ. And so we're constantly preaching the gospel to each other. I'm constantly telling you, you're constantly telling me. Hey, do you know just how much Jesus loves you? Yeah, I know. No, I don't think that you do. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? He died for you on the cross. He has forgiven your sins. You have been given an opportunity for a brand new kind of life in him. You no longer have to wear that dirty old self. You are being wrapped in a brand new self. And you would say to me, Luke, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus loves you. And I'd go, yeah, I know. And you go, no, you don't. I don't know if you realize just how much Jesus loves you. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sin is from you. That we would constantly be gospeling with one another, constantly be telling each other things that we think we know, because it's not about this kind of knowledge It's about something that happens deep inside of us, that gets rooted in us, and that roots us actually in the kingdom of God, and then we start to see fruit produced in us that doesn't really come from us. It's kind of the result of being challenged by the gospel and challenging one another, of discipling one another. Do you have people in your life who challenge you, who challenge you to follow Jesus better? You need people like that. Paul has people like Timothy and Titus, and we hear about other people like Phoebe and Yodia and Syntyche, men and women that he is constantly challenging to be better at following Jesus and actually raising up into being leaders for the kingdom of God. But those people have somebody like Paul in their life who's pouring into them and also people that they are pouring into. 
people who they're raising up as leaders, people who they're talking to about Jesus who've never heard about Jesus, and people they're talking to heard about Jesus a billion times. And they're doing this because they see it modeled by Paul. Paul is writing to Christians a lot of the time, to churches he's found, to people who've come to know Jesus, and he's reminding them of things that they already know. Hey, Jesus loves you. That's what most of the Bible is, a reminder of things that in theory you know, but that you don't really have deep inside of you. And we become a part of this great chain of discipleship. Because actually, I'm a Christian not just because I have this book, which was, of course, preserved for me by other Christians in the church through time, but I'm a Christian because of what other people have done in my life, how they've poured into me, and because of other people who poured into them. And that stretches all the way back to Jesus. Jesus and the disciples who we led in the first place. That you and I are part of this great chain with one another. And so the question is, who's like Paul in your life? Who's somebody who's pouring into you? Investing in you? And maybe you have mentors like that from the past, or people who've just been a huge influence in your life. Who is like Paul and pouring into you? Do you have their phone number? Could you call them in a crisis? Would they come over? Because you need people like that in your life. Who are you like Paul to? Who are you pouring into and discipling? I know many of us have young life kids or folks that we're mentoring or foster children that are involved in our lives. Some actual children involved in our lives. right? People who have come out of our bodies and we're trying to raise up into new kinds of people. What does it really look like to be people who love folks? Well, we're in community groups with one another which doesn't necessarily look like I'm pouring into you or you're pouring into me. It looks like we're pouring into each other and constantly challenging each other. And some of us are thinking, well, I'm married, so I don't really need those kinds of relationships. I get challenged all the time. Great. I also get challenged by my wife all the time. My wife also gets challenged by me all the time. It's great to be in a marriage that's challenging. And if you're looking to get married, find somebody who challenges you. But guys need some guys in their life. Women need some women in their lives. Couples need some couples in their lives. Parents need some parents in their lives. Children need some children in their lives. We're called to disciple one another, to teach and admonish one another, to help one another become better at following Jesus. And along the way, to practice being like Jesus when people are really bad at following Jesus. That's the beautiful thing about the church. We get to tell the gospel to one another and also practice when other people are bad at living out the gospel. And this all sounds like a really difficult thing to do, And that's, I think, why Paul is constantly challenging us. Everything you do, he says in verse 17, let everything you do be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Remember who you are, that you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, he says. And because you're God's chosen ones and because you're putting on this new self, you should look like it. You should be, well, compassionate, gracious and kind and patient and loving and probably singing songs all the time and thankful, by the way. Just he's constantly throwing in little things like this is what the Christian life looks like and we're doing it well that we become these kinds of people, that we sing a different tune than the culture around us. That we would be people who are constantly remembering who we are and the kind of identity that's been given to us in Jesus Christ, and that we'd be living that out. That we'd be living that out day in and day out, even when it just seems difficult and maybe impossible and kind of pointless. Because in a season where everybody's in a pandemic and the world seems to be kind of on fire and you don't really know if it really makes sense to try and be like Jesus. And try to do something as simple as love your neighbors and pray for those who persecute you. And try to be a little bit more compassionate than you were yesterday. Or put on the image of Christ just a little bit more today than you did yesterday. Or give up that old identity in some weird new spot that you see that's, that's ugly and broken. Because that, that just seems so simple and so small. And we have these huge, impossible problems in our world. 
Sometimes huge impossible problems get solved when people are willing to do small, slow, steady actions, day in and day out. In 1885, actually, you know what? Uh, in 1871, 1871, the Chicago Fire happened. Some of you know what that was. It was a devastating thing that happened in the city of Chicago. A major city in the United States just caught on fire, the whole city. But the Chicago Fire actually started because there was a fire across the river, across the Chicago River, and it jumped the river to catch the city on fire. Not a lot of people know that. And it jumped the river by, a, well, by catching the river on fire. The river was flammable. That was part of why the, the city of Chicago caught on fire. And you say, how is water flammable? And the answer is, because people had been dumping stuff in the river for decades. Sewage just poured into the river of Chicago. Industrial waste poured into the river of Chicago. And because the more it stank and the uglier it was, the more people just threw trash in the river of Chicago. And little by little, people just knew it as this stinking, horrible mess. But most of the time, you could avoid the reality. You just It, it affected some people, but the rest of us could just ignore it. But then in 1885, things got even worse than the fire because there was a rainstorm, a little thing, that slowly and steadily raised the level of Chicago River and pushed all of this pollution into Lake Michigan, just past the water intakes for the city of Chicago. So that now people were drinking their own sewage and drinking their own industrial waste. And there was no home in Chicago that could avoid it because it had fouled the drinking water. People could not ignore this ugly reality that had been there all along, but suddenly they were paying the price for decades of bad choices. They were dealing and confronted with their sin all of a sudden. And 15% of Chicago died of things like, you know, cholera and dysentery and all of the sorts of things you would expect when you're drinking your own sewage. And it made a lot of people think, man, Chicago caught on fire, and now we're all dying because of our own terrible choices. Maybe we should just leave. Maybe we should abandon the city of Chicago. And everyone was pointing fingers, and everybody was blaming everybody else. And the truth is, everyone had kind of contributed to the problem in one way or another. And there was no solution because it was impossible, this huge thing that nobody could figure out what to do with. But there was a quiet group of engineers that had a crazy idea. We're going to dig a trench. That was their plan. We're going to dig a trench. It's going to be 24 feet deep by 160 feet wide by 28 miles long. That's miles. For those of you who know things about geography, yes, that is larger than the Panama Canal. And the plan was we're going to dig deeper than the Continental Divide, which sounded impossible. And we're going to do a lot of this by hand, which sounds impossible. And it's going to take years of very hard work. And when they completed the trench by January of 1900, people didn't know if it would work. But what they did was they unleashed the floodgates and they allowed water to flow in a direction it had never flowed before. And the, the Chicago River went backwards. Something that had never happened in the history of the world, that had never happened in the river of Chicago, happened. A river flowed upstream. It went the wrong direction. And when it went the wrong direction, it hit another river which then began to go the wrong direction, the Illinois River. And that made it to the Mississippi River. And all of this horrible, terrible pollution made it to the Mississippi River and then was flushed into the ocean. It was just annihilated by the massive amount of water that came from Lake Michigan because these people had managed to dig deep enough to completely change the situation. Now, these engineers, 
are people who worked really hard for a very long period of time with something simple like digging a trench. But they did their work faithfully enough and carefully enough that they managed to connect the problem of human misery and sin with a power that was beyond them. They weren't able to fix the problem, but they knew that there was living water that could fix the problem. You and I are in a similar situation. We have to dig past the divide. Not the continental divide, but the divide that exists in our time among people. And that sounds impossible. And there won't be any heavy machinery to do the work for us. You and I are going to have to do it each and every day. And the change is going to start with us. We're going to be people who love so well, who love so deeply, who love so consistently over such a long period of time that we manage to connect the misery of the human condition with living water. And you and I absolutely know what happens when that living water impacts sin and misery and pollution and horrible choices in people's lives. It washes it away. It completely changes the situation and brings new life to people that genuinely didn't think that new life was possible. And we know that that's true because we've experienced it, Paul says. That's why we forgive, because we've been forgiven. That's why we can experience this new identity, because we've seen it lived out for us in Jesus Christ. And that's why we do everything that we do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Hard though it may be, impossible though it may seem. Because we remember who we are in Christ. And we remember it largely because we're discipling one another. Because in the days we're tempted to forget and give up, somebody says, hey, do you remember who Jesus is in your life? And you go, yeah, no, 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 but I think I need to remind you again about the gospel story, that we are constantly discipling one another. And that's how we get stronger together. Would you pray with me?